From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is away this week. I'm Bob Garfield. The first hundred days of the Trump administration have been something like the White House bowling alley. The Obama administration hurled regulations aimed at protecting the public, and now, almost automatically, in the name of undoing executive overreach, they're rolling right back. The White House has even undertaken to permit no new regulations unless two older ones are erased from the books. The latest rollback concerns online privacy. After a vote in the House on Tuesday, the president's signature will reverse rules that later this year would have governed user data. Namely, they would have required Internet service providers to ask permission if they wanted to track your information, information including your browsing history, your location, even your app use. It means your entire digital footprint, any medical questions you might look for answers to online, online searches, even your private emails could be sold to third parties. Users were given the right to privacy so that their data could not be sold without their permission to advertisers and others by broadband providers. But under the new rules, your ISP, Comcast, Verizon, Cox, AT&T, whomever, can freely sell your data. This week's vote was done under the Congressional Review Act, an obscure and rarely used way to undo agency regulations passed during the waning months of a previous administration. And here's the twist. Under the law, once a new rule is revoked, that agency cannot ever make it or anything similar to it again. Right now, there is essentially no federal regulator for how this data will be handled by ISPs. Chris Calabrese is policy vice president at the Center for Democracy and Technology. The regulator that governs Google and Facebook, the Federal Trade Commission, has no authority over ISPs. They are barred by federal law from regulating what are called common carriers. So they can't actually regulate what Comcast or Verizon does in this context. So we don't know what consumers are going to be given in terms of rights. We really don't. The rules that the Obama administration, FCC, imposed haven't even taken effect. But the theory was that our own data, that which we generate, belongs to us. Mm -hmm. That has obviously been flipped. And now the data under this law seems to belong to who is ever carrying it. Kind of like if a trucking company took ownership of the goods that it was driving from state to state. Is there any way to understand this legislation apart from a big, fat gift basket to the ISPs? You know, I I think it's hard to really see this as a consumer benefit. The reality is that consumers are constantly asking for more control over their information. They're worried about where it's going. Poll after poll shows that people don't like these take-it-or-leave-it privacy policies, for example. I mean, I think some of the companies present this as a a major regulatory burden or saying, you know, we we need to be lifted from the shackles of having controls over this information. And so that may be the perspective that the administration thought they were getting into. Well, this will be, you know, one less regulation. I think in this case, this is a regulation that serves a very useful and important purpose and one that people like and agree with. Matt Stoller, a fellow at the New America Foundation, even found protests bubbling up in the comments section of Breitbart, which is <laughs> the uh, uh, the Trump administration's wheelhouse. I think most consumers are saying, well, I'd like to be the one who decides what information about me gets out there and, and who it gets shared with. You could certainly see a benefit to big advertisers. For example, one of the things that advertisers are always looking for is more information on their consumers. They're looking to be able to figure out if when someone saw an ad, where they saw it, and if it led directly to them purchasing a product. It's much easier to draw that kind of value line if you have this kind of detailed viewpoint into people's behaviors and patterns. Give me an example of the kind of targeted advertising that we might see on the basis of our data being commodified like this? Well, I mean, one thing that we have seen already and I think could be exacerbated under this is 
Last year, we saw people who entered individual Planned Parenthood clinics being offered anti-abortion ads literally as they were sitting in the clinic. These were geotags, so they were aimed at people in a particular location. And, you know, that's something that's legal now. ISPs could use that same technology to offer these kind of very distinct and different ads. And probably more troubling, they could collect information about the people who were in those clinics and do other things with it, which I think a lot of people would be very nervous about. So it's the same technology that allows me to go into a Wendy's or something and automatically have a coupon for a Frosty sent you to my phone. It. Enables advertisers really to peek into parts of my life that I don't prefer to have an open book. That's exactly right. And that's exactly why we want to give consumers the choice here, because they may well be happy to have that coupon, but still not want to have people record when they're in a doctor's office or a church or a gun shop or anywhere else. It's not as though I can, you know, go up to a teller window at Comcast and buy your search history, right? Yeah, here's $100. I'd like to know where Chris Calabrese has searched in, in the last 24 hours, right? The reality is that's not illegal. I just think they would not do it as a matter of practice. Companies know better than to put their customers' identifiable personal searching habits out online for sale. So those uh, people who are signing petitions to buy Donald Trump's search history, they're, they're not going to get satisfaction, are they? You know, that's a good thing. Even if we're frustrated by you know Congress's actions or the president's actions, I don't want to live in a world where it's possible to buy my search history online. And I want companies and individuals to think that's a bad thing. All right. Chris, thank you so much. Sure. Good to talk to you. Chris Calabrese is policy vice president at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Coming up, 16 tons of not much at all. This is On the Media. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. On Tuesday, President Trump sat flanked by a rugged semicircle of real-life coal miners. It was one of his latest executive order signing ceremonies, this one to have the Environmental Protection Agency review, which is to say dismantle, the Clean Power Plan, the signature Obama administration policy aimed at lessening electricity generation's impact on climate change. In particular, I want to thank the miners. You know, my guys, they'll get enough thanks. These people haven't had enough thanks. They've had a hard time for a long time. Ah, the miners, the salt-of-the-earth laborers victimized by climate hoax, globalism, and soft-skinned elites. It was a familiar trope trotted out again and again during the presidential campaign. We're going to put our miners back to work, and we're going to put our steel workers back to work, believe me. 
Yes, the coal economy was affected by Obama administration environmental correctness, but most of the jobs have disappeared as a result of automated mountaintop mining and price competition from abundant natural gas. Obama's clean power plan, scourge of the fossil fuel industry, hadn't even gone into effect. Yet West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee have assumed an outsized role in the Trump narrative, inviting not just empty political promises, but careless caricatures of the region and of the industry that we imagine to be its sole sustenance. Elizabeth Catt is a writer and historian from East Tennessee and author of the forthcoming book, What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. There's probably around 30,000 people who work in the coal industry throughout the region, maybe 16 or 17,000 in West Virginia. So there are far more people in Appalachia who work in education, who work in healthcare, who work in sort of lower wage jobs like retail or, or food service. Though the number of coal miners and even ex-coal miners is infinitesimally small relative to the electorate, the region kind of took the brunt of the criticism for Trumpism. Yeah, so even before the election took place, these localities in West Virginia and eastern Kentucky coal country were identified quite unambiguously as Trump country. Every prestige publication from The New Yorker to Vanity Fair had a profile about sort of down-and-out white voters in these regions. One thing that's driving this momentum is the success of, for example, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly LG. This book has been held up as sort of the Rosetta Stone for understanding a unique kind of disadvantaged white worker. But I think the other thing is this sort of historical purpose that Appalachia has always served, which was to be the antidote to progress. So whatever bad things are going on in the country, whether it's sort of the unbridled racism that is filtered through this campaign or just extremely dire economic realities, it's easier to compartmentalize them in a specific place or in a specific people. And Appalachians have always served this purpose. Now, it's not that the anecdotes, the individual stories that are told aren't true, It's just that they don't project to a whole region, eh? I think that's correct. Of course, reporters are coming into these regions and they're getting stories and they're getting sound bites. And, you know, you have this kind of collision of human interest stories versus urgent need to understand what many people perceive as sort of a new phenomenon, this sort of new political tilt. So in reality, these stories are accurate. They reflect the experiences of people who live there. The problem is... They're not really reflective of everyone who lives in Appalachia, people with sort of leftist politics are often left out of these stories, people who are environmentalists, people who are non-white are often left out of these pieces. Now, it seems to me that since Trump signed the order, the coverage has been filled less with stereotypes and more just clear-headed economic analysis. Is it my imagination? Has it gotten a little better? It's gotten different. I'm not sure if it's gotten better, although you're definitely correct that we're seeing more clear-headed sort of economic analysis. What happens is before the election, a lot of these pieces that are about the region are based on this sort of conversation happening. Should we have sympathy for people who support Trump? Is this economic anxiety? What's going on with these people? We must understand them. And so after the election, you get a shift towards pieces that convey retribution for Trump voters, the opposite of sympathy. So you have articles like No Sympathy for Hillbillies or Blue Exit or Be Happy That Miners Are Losing Their Health Insurance. I think what these pieces share is the willingness to see Appalachia as only through a variety of extremes. There are great projects that are happening in the region that are trying to correct this like 100 Days in Appalachia, which is sort of a catalog of what's going on in the region during the first 100 days of the administration. But there's still definitely that pendulum that's swinging where either Appalachians are innocent or villainous, but nothing in between. But they have not just been sitting idle for the last 35 years, waiting for a miracle to occur. They have themselves been trying to adjust to a post-coal economy. In what ways? There's not an insignificant number of development agencies in Appalachia that are focused on what we would call the transition. So what becomes of Appalachia after coal? 
Unfortunately, a lot of these agencies are managed through the umbrella organizations that are on the chopping block for Trump's new budget. We began this conversation discussing the tableau of the order signing, all these coal miners standing proudly behind the president. If that photo op were to reflect the real beneficiaries of the president's order, who instead of the miners would have been there? Well, the irony is the beneficiaries are in those photographs. They're the the CEOs of the energy companies, but they're dressed like miners. These CEOs costume themselves as miners for photo ops. There are, you know, individuals who are actively working miners in those photographs as well. So the people are there. They're just hidden. And that's sort of my general message for, for everything that you can look at in Appalachia. The reality is hidden in plain view. Exactly. Elizabeth, thank you very much. My pleasure. Historian Elizabeth Catt is the author of the forthcoming What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. The press, says the President of the United States, is an enemy of the people. Big deal. Jason Leopold, according to the National Security Agency, is something even worse. The senior investigative reporter at BuzzFeed is a power user of FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, and he is such a nuisance that the NSA has joined the FBI in labeling him a FOIA terrorist. Leopold recently filed a lawsuit against the NSA for its lack of timely response to his years-old FOIA request. The NSA's response? To ask the court for a rarely used Open America Day, which would send Leopold's request all the way to the back of the line. These are inspector general reports, internal watchdog reports at the NSA that would uh, provide insight into waste, fraud, abuse, whistleblowing, essentially what's going on behind the scenes and what the NSA is looking into. And if the government chooses not to provide documents, there are a number of reasons that it can cite, some of them fairly mundane, but they didn't apply to you, and they played a card that you weren't expecting them to play. Tell me. This was extraordinary. I had been battling the NSA over these documents for about two years. I knew that they had quite a large backlog when I had checked in with the NSA to find out when they were going to process my request. I was basically told that it wouldn't be for about two or three years. So it was at that point that I amended my Freedom of Information Act request and added additional years of reports that I wanted to obtain, 2015 and 2016, and then I sued the NSA. And remarkably, the NSA responded by saying that they have 20,000 pages of documents, 20,000 pages of documents covering three years. And they asked if I would be willing to narrow this. No, I was not interested in narrowing it. I I want all 20,000 pages. Right off the bat, Bob, that tells me that there's something going on behind the scenes. And since inspectors general investigate internal scandals or potential scandals or criminality, that's at a minimum a lot of smoke. But they didn't want to provide it and made an extraordinary legal claim. What was it? They called me a self-styled FOIA terrorist. (laughs) Which, you know, you should probably take as a compliment. And in fact, you have used that term, but why did you start using it to begin with? It's true. I do use that term. It's in my Twitter bio. You know, I use that term because back, uh, say, about five or six years ago, I'd filed a number of requests with the FBI. And the FBI called me a FOIA terrorist, essentially saying that I was terrorizing the agency with my regular Freedom of Information Act requests. And they were quite angry about it. You know, it's not unusual for me to find out that the government is disparaging me behind the scenes. I've seen it in emails and documents. But in this case, this was so disturbing because they were using that as a legal argument, as a way to try and convince a judge not to give me records. In addition to that, they said that BuzzFeed News had hired me specifically to bombard the government with Freedom of Information Act requests. 
Now, it's possible, of course, that they're hesitant to devote the resources required to give you 20,000 pages of documents because it's an onerous burden. But you suspect that the answer lies elsewhere. I do. I'm sympathetic, and I do understand that. You know, I don't expect them to give me 20,000 pages of documents in a single day. But what they did prior to filing this motion, as well as a declaration from the NSA's chief FOIA officer, they charged me an extraordinary amount of money to buy these records, to basically purchase them. And even though I asked for a fee waiver saying, this is for the public interest, I'm a journalist. And the response to that is, these records, there is no public interest. There's no public interest in providing information to the public about waste, fraud, and abuse at one of the most powerful intelligence agencies in the world. So that, to me, was immediately a hint, a clue, that the NSA was not going to give up these records without a fight. As you can imagine, I'm even more intrigued and eager to obtain these records. I mean, if it turns out that it's you know credit card abuse or fraud or things being stolen internally, perhaps that will raise another set of questions about why the NSA went to such great lengths to protect these records. In case this wasn't altogether obvious, FOIA is the law of the land passed by Congress, upheld in the court, and every single executive branch agency has a mechanism within to uh, process such requests. So while you may be overwhelming the system, the system is there for the very purpose of surrendering certain information, that you're using the law for the benefit of public interest. Correct. That's exactly what I'm using it for. And I'm not doing anything wrong. Ultimately, this is all in the public interest, and that's all that I'm doing here. Jason, as always, many thank yous. Thank you so much, Bob. Great to be with you again. Jason Leopold is the senior investigative reporter at BuzzFeed. If Leopold is a FOIA terrorist, data mapper Max Galka has located FOIA ISIS, and it isn't who you think. Journalists account for a mere 7.6% of requests under the Freedom of Information Act. By contrast, businesses from consumer brands to law firms to hedge funds account for 50% of those requests because information is power and power has cash value. Max, welcome to On the Media. Hi, Bob. Glad to be here. What was the process for trying to figure out the pie chart of requests? It's something that I've been wondering about for a long time, and so have many other people. But the truth is, it's a very difficult thing to get to the bottom of, because the only place where that information is stored is in these documents that are called FOIA logs, which are basically each agency's list of prior requests. So all the information is out there. The problem is we normally have to ask for it by request, which can take months or even years. Wait, wait, wait. You have to submit a FOIA request to get the FOIA you request log. You have to FOIA the FOIAs, yes. <laughs> but of course you yes. do. Yes, yeah. It wasn't Jason Leopold at the top of the list, nor the Associated Press, nor the New York Times, nor journalism in general, but businesses. And five companies alone account for 11% of at least the 229,000 FOIA requests that you reviewed. Who are they? Those five businesses all request almost exclusively from the SEC. Securities and Exchange Commission. Correct. Each of these guys is just requesting information about every company under the sun. And they sell a paid research product for institutional investors. Uh, I can't speak to these documents at the SEC, but I did look back over their annual FOIA reports, and I can see that the total cost to them for processing all FOIA requests during the last 10 years was about $52 million. <laughs> Yikes. But they charge a fee for fulfilling the requests. <laughs> There's some revenue to offset that. How much yeah. have they taken in? Yeah, so in theory, if you're requesting information from an agency and you're using it for a commercial purpose, you should have to pay for the cost of processing those records. But during that whole period, what they've taken in is about 600000 <laughs> so, so not a whole lot. So the taxpayers are only footing the bill for $51.4 of the $52 million. If you're requesting the data as a media organization, 
you can request a lot, up to a very large amount of records, and it's still free. So a number of these requesters that are getting away without paying much money are doing so because they do put some of the information on their websites and are being classified as media requesters, mm -hmm. changing the way that the government classifies who counts as a media requester and who doesn't would be the permanent solution to that problem. Now, not everything is these uh, financial information clearinghouses. Some are discrete requests from individual companies, brands, mm -hmm. who have other motives. Can you give me some examples? Oh, boy. There are so many different ways that businesses are using uh, FOIA. You mentioned consumer brands. What a lot of them will do, for example, Coca-Cola or 7-Up, they will ask for information from the Department of Defense about past contracts, that who won the last contract to supply the military with product X, and that will help them craft... More favorable terms in their own dealings with yeah, the... Yeah, that's right. Huh. Hedge funds file yeah. a lot of requests. I'll bite. Why hedge funds? So just in very simple terms, information is what hedge funds specialize in, right? They use information to make smart trading decisions. If a hedge fund is considering investing in a pharmaceutical company, maybe that pharmaceutical company has a new drug. In which, clinical trials. Yeah. So the hedge fund might submit a request to the FDA for any adverse reactions that have occurred with this drug. So if some new arthritis drug is making people just drop dead or grow third arms, the hedge fund will say, yeah, maybe we're not going to make a bet on that company. Yes. Or maybe they already have invested in it and they say, okay, now is the time to exit this investment. This is just one of the many ways that hedge funds are using FOIA. It almost feels like insider trading. It's not because any information you request through FOIA is by definition public. But this is a big one, and it's growing very fast, and it is extremely profitable from the studies that have looked into this. But it's not just businesses. Political committees use yeah. FOIA requests to get the dope on who, how, and why. Yeah, they are actually really, really big users of FOIA. The three biggest are the Democratic National Committee, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, and the uh, Congressional Campaign Committee. Combine all their requests together, it amounts to about 5,000 per year, more requests than any media organization out there. Most of them take the form of what looks like I request all correspondence between your agency and, say, Marco Rubio. Opposition research. Yes. So, for example, you might go to every agency to see if, in his official capacity, Senator Rubio had improperly used his senatorial leverage for political purposes. This is all hypothetical. Yes. The idea is to find something that could be useful in helping a Democrat run against Marco Rubio. Yes. You see the same thing in the senatorial and congressional elections as well, and also at the local level too. Foreign governments can use FOIA? Yeah. Very often they are to the Department of Defense asking about different kinds of military technologies. China can do a FOIA to the Department of Defense about, I don't know, silent submarine propulsion systems? I made that up, by the way. Yeah, they can request whatever they want. Doesn't mean that the department is going to fulfill it. All right, so the private sector is using or overusing or abusing or exploiting a perfectly legal method for obtaining information from the government. Is there any reason why we should be queasy about that? Yes. Most of these government agencies are overloaded with requests as it is, and journalists often have to wait for a very long time before getting the information they request. It certainly has mutated from when it was enacted, when it was really a tool purely for journalists. Clearly today it's not, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Here are two groups that have a vested interest together in improving FOIA. These commercial organizations have one very important thing that a lot of media organizations lack, and that is deep pockets. I think cooperation between hedge funds and journalism outfits is sort of an unlikely match, but actually really makes a lot of sense. All right. Now, during this odyssey of foying for FOIA logs and so forth, was there a single piece of information that you dislodged that made you say to yourself, well, this is just about the most delicious thing I've ever seen? Every now and then you run into just a really odd one that seems inexplicable. Twitter was asking for information regarding something about the Manhattan Project. 
This was the development of the atomic bomb, the ultimate top secret operation of the 40s. Any clue as to why? I searched around. I couldn't find anything. It's a total mystery to me. Max, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Max Galka, an expert in data visualization, is the founder of FOIA Mapper. Coming up, first there was true crime. Now there is true innocence. This is on the media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. Since WNYC's first broadcast in 1924, we've been dedicated to creating the kind of content we know the world needs. In addition to this award-winning reporting, your sponsorship also supports inspiring storytelling and extraordinary music that is free and accessible to all. To get in touch and find out more, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. Last weekend in a San Diego hotel ballroom convened dozens of men and women who previously could not have met for so much as a coffee because... They were behind bars. The annual conference is a celebration of exonerations achieved by the Innocence Network, 68 organizations, mainly law schools, that since at least the early 90s have been working to secure the release of the unjustly imprisoned. A keystone of the network is the U.S. Innocence Project, which alone boasts almost 350 former convicts freed, and in 40% of those cases, the true culprits prosecuted. Apart from the individual miscarriages of justice, innocence organizations work with legislatures to address the justice system's corrupt practices and systemic flaws, from eyewitness misidentification to shoddy forensics, to coerced confession. One such confession was brought to national prominence by the hit Netflix series, Making a Murderer. Why'd you cut the hair off last tonight? The night you guys found it in the garage? Doesn't make sense. That's impossible. You took her out to the garage and that's when you got the knife. That's an investigation tape featuring Brendan Dassey, a mentally disabled teenager who was tricked into admitting guilt in a murder he did not commit. And Sarah Koenig's viral podcast, Serial, introduced the world to Adnan Sayed, a Baltimore teen now serving a life sentence for murder based on incomplete evidence. I just sometimes wish like, they could like, look into my brain and see how I really felt about her. And, and no matter what else someone would say, they would see, man, this guy had no, had no ill will towards it. Whatever the motivation is to kill someone, I had absolutely, it didn't exist in me. You know what I mean? Indeed, the true crime genre has found a burgeoning spin-off in true innocence, compelling tales of judicial incompetence and even malice with truly barbaric consequences. Among them is the podcast Wrongful Conviction by Jason Flom, a founding board member of The Innocence Project. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Now, you're a record executive by trade. You run... Lava Records. Before that, you've been at Capitol and Atlantic as the boss, and have launched careers of stars like Kid Rock and Katy Perry and Matchbox 20 and Lord, which is an eclectic group. But at the same time, you've been working counterintuitively on criminal justice reform, like since the early 90s. Tell me about Steve Lennon and how you got involved in his case. This woman, Shirley Lennon, who was the mother of Stephen Lennon, had been advocating for clemency for her son who was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge. So let's just process that for a second, right? 
the headline was Cuomo denies Ferraro bid for druggy parole. And this was the first Governor Cuomo, Mario Cuomo. And the reason it was in the paper was because Shirley Lennon had gotten letters from the judge, the warden, and Geraldine Ferraro, who at that time, of course, you remember, was the first woman who was ever nominated to be vice president of the United States. She had written a letter to Governor Cuomo, and Cuomo had turned it down. I read this, and I just freaked out. So I called her on the phone, and I said, listen, you probably think I'm some nut from New York, but I just read this story about your son, and I have to do something about it. I only knew one criminal defense lawyer. It was a guy named Bob Kalina. He used to represent my rock stars when they would get in trouble. (laughs) So I called Bob, and I said, do me a favor. Talk to Shirley on the phone. It's driving me crazy. So he did, and he agreed as a favor to me to take the case pro bono. And we found ourselves five months later or so in a courtroom in Malone, New York. They brought this kid, Stephen, in in shackles. And I was literally sitting there holding his mom's hand. I was sitting there with, with, with Stan and Shirley. And the judge says, I haven't heard anything in this courtroom today that under statute this, that, whatever. The, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. And he goes, but under the power granted to me by the state of New York, the motion is granted. And he slammed the gavel down and I went, oh my God, what just happened? And Bob comes over and he goes, we won. I was like, we won? I go, wow, that's incredible, right? It was like the best feeling I'd ever known. And so I said, I'm going to do more of that. You know, I understand being hit with this blast of righteous indignation and determining, I'm going to, I'm going to do something here, you know, sort of with a messianic zeal that sometimes we feel when we encounter injustice. And then I think typically for most people, it just sort of fades and the zeal is gone by the next day. But you stayed with this, even though it was completely out of your portfolio as a record executive. Why do you suppose you did that? I call it selfish altruism, right? And I think that there's at least an argument that altruism is selfish, just in its nature. This stuff makes me feel good. It inspires me. And then when you get to be around the exonerees and you get to meet them and get a sense of the incredible inner strength that these people possess, it puts gratitude in your attitude. One of your podcast guests was a woman named Sonia Sonny Jacobs. Tell me her story. The crime happened in the 70s. She was a hippie at the time and a vegetarian, and she wears love beads, and she's just a sort of beautiful, gentle soul. She and her husband, Jesse Tafaro, were stuck in Florida with their kids, who are nine, and the other one's an infant, Christina. Their car had broken down, and a friend of Jesse's, who was a sort of a nefarious character, he offered them a ride, and they didn't have any options. So they were driving across the state, and at a rest stop, a cop knocked on the window. And rather than produce his license and registration, the driver came up shooting, and he killed uh, both the state trooper and the Canadian constable who was riding along with the state trooper. He ended up pointing the gun at Sonny and telling them to get in the cop car with their two kids. And at that point, we became hostages of the man who had just shot the two policemen. We were put into the back of the police car. I was thinking in my mind, okay, like, how do we get away from this guy? He was racing down the interstate, and I could hear helicopters above. And I thought, oh, my God, maybe the traffic is so bad because maybe there's a roadblock or something, and maybe that's a helicopter, and we're going to be saved. Right, you're going to be saved, right? The cops are going to come get you. Great. Out of this nightmare. And we come upon the roadblock. You can see it. Thank God, I'm thinking. At which point, he makes a sharp left, and all the police lined up at the roadblock with their rifles open fire on the car. The car was bouncing with the bullets, and then we crashed. She thought they were being saved. Well, in fact, the cops were extremely angry and took them out of the car. They hit Jesse, the husband, with a rifle butt, and they ended up taking them all to prison. And the killer, in order to save himself from getting the death penalty, testified against them, which was ridiculous. Testified that they weren't just catching a ride from their friend, but that they were complicit in the mayhem. And it gets worse and worse from there. The judge was a guy named Maximum Dan, who was a former state trooper who kept a little electric chair on his desk that you could touch and it would zzz like that. And the jury sentenced Sonny to life, and he overrode them and sentenced her to death. And the killer was sentenced to life. 
And Jessie was executed in the electric chair, and she ended up being the only woman on death row at the time in Florida. I believe there had been a moratorium on the death penalty. She was all alone in her cell 24 hours a day, except for twice a week she was allowed out for eight minutes to shower if there was no shampoo, and if there was shampoo, she got 10 twice a week. But the guards weren't allowed to speak to her because they didn't want the guards developing any sort of friendship with her, and then she would be executed, and then they would need, you know, therapy. And did I mention that her kids were being raised by Sonny's parents, who then died in a plane crash in year six of her incarceration? And the real killer had confessed numerous times by now, but they said that his testimony was not credible. It was credible when he was implicating them, but not credible now that he had had a religious awakening and had decided to take responsibility for what he had done. So she remained locked up. And ultimately... The only other witness against her was a jailhouse snitch, which we now call an incentivized witness, right? Because they're getting consideration from prosecutors or parole boards or jailers in exchange for their cooperation on cases. Which is pretty wacky, right? Like, we all know you can't bribe a witness. We can't, but the government can. They went to her and said, you're going to be doing society a favor. This woman is a cop killer. All you have to do is tell us that she told you that she did it, and we're going to drop the charges against you. And she was facing a felony charge of passing bad prescriptions or something like that. So Sonny's lawyers tracked her down. She was mortified to learn that she had actually helped to convict an innocent person. And she testifies for the defense. She looks Sonny in the eye and apologizes to her for what she did. And then the prosecutor gets up to cross-examine her, and Sonny says, you know, and she starts breathing heavily, and, and she's holding her chest, and the woman has a heart attack uh. on the stand and gets wheeled out. And so the defense testimony is no good because she was not able to be cross-examined. So ultimately, she lives, and she was allowed to testify by video, and they offered Sonny an Alford plea. And an Alfred plea basically says is that you're getting out of jail, but you have no recourse. You can't sue. You're still a convicted felon. So it's a way of them admitting that they were wrong without admitting they were wrong. And it's really sort of a Sophie's Choice kind of thing, right? So she took the plea, mm-hmm. and she walked out of jail with nothing. And as far as anybody else is concerned, she's a murderer. Yeah, although the happy ending is that years later, she was speaking at an Amnesty International event about the death penalty, of which there are few people more qualified to speak on that than she is. And it was in Ireland, and she met a guy named Peter Pringle. And it turns out they had a lot to talk about because he had been wrongfully convicted of murdering two police officers in Ireland and served 15 years and came within days of his own execution date before his sentence was commuted. And so they're now married Well, on the subject of insane stories, your podcast has also featured an exoneree named Douglas DeLosa. This also simply defies credulity. And yet, his case began in 1987 when he was found in a home, hogtied, that is to say, tied up his hands and legs from behind. His wife was found murdered in the house, and he was charged with the murder? Yeah. Doug was a guy who was a few credits shy of his MBA, had a good job, was raising a family, had married the girl of his dreams. Just a very idyllic sort of situation, living in a suburb of New Orleans. And his home had been broken into, and he awoke in the middle of the night and was hit in the head when he went downstairs to check what was going on because his parrot had been squawking and woke up hogtied called for his wife, and she didn't respond because by now she had been killed. He had a footprint on his back because you could imagine when somebody stepped on him to pull the ropes tight, right? And uh, his son came downstairs, who was seven at the time. His children were seven and five, and called the cops. And so this case aroused the public. It was in a quiet neighborhood. There was a lot of coverage of the case. Police were under a lot of pressure to find a suspect and fast. Sure, and that's a common cause of wrongful convictions. In this case, after a few months had gone by and they were unable to locate these two perpetrators, 
One day, Doug is on his lawn. It was December 29th. He was taking out his Christmas tree. And as I'm putting the tree in the back of my house by the curve for the trash, I hear Doug DeLosa turn around. And I sort of turn around, and I'm like almost in shock. I have no idea how many police officers are there. A minimum of six, maybe 10 or more. Probably as many news personnel were there as there were police officers pointing cameras at me and the police pointing guns at me. And they say, we're here to arrest you for the murder of your wife. And I'm just like thinking to myself, this can't be true. This nightmare just keeps getting worse and worse. And I asked the one detective, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to my children? You know that I didn't kill my wife. And this police officer, when I asked him that question, he had the look of a wild man on his face. His voice was almost venomous. And he says, man, fuck you, fuck your children, and fuck that dead wife of yours. I don't know who did it. Maybe I know you didn't do it, but I can build the case against you, so you're it. At the trial, they brought in a circus performer to show how you could hogtie yourself. They never did explain <laughs> the footprint. I know it's funny, except it's not. And the prosecutor has a responsibility to turn over exculpatory evidence to the defense. And in this case, they did quite the opposite. They withheld three critical pieces of evidence, and he ended up being sent to Angola, where he was literally on a chain gang. He was almost beaten to death by guards, and he survived just nightmarish things until he ultimately was able to uncover the evidence that they had withheld and was able to file a pro se motion, which, of course, is a motion that is filed by an incarcerated person. And he filed it knowing that the judge, who was a conservative judge, had never granted a pro se motion before. And when you hear on Wrongful Conviction, uh, the podcast, when you hear the episode, and Doug describes how one day he was awakened very early in the morning and told that he had legal mail. I went to the window where they pass out the legal mail. They had me a little brown envelope, and I was scared to open it. I'm like... You're done. This is your last if, appeal, if, right? If it's the wrong answer, I had a plan to escape from Angola. And my escape from Angola was I had enough drugs in my possession hidden that probably within 24 hours I was going to OD, and that's how I was going to get out of prison. And that had been something I had planned for months. So I took a couple of big, deep breaths, and my heart was probably beating 200 beats a minute, and I was shaking. And Mine is right now, and, and I know the answer. <laughs> and it, I opened that writ to the last page, and all of a sudden I just stopped shaking and for the first time since my wife's funeral, I cried. I started crying almost uncontrollably when I read that the magistrate judge recommended that my conviction be set aside and that I be freed. I mentioned in the introduction to this conversation that all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, there is this robust market for what I call the true innocence subgenre of the true crime category. Now, true crime has always been a staple because people gasp at the horror of the crime and gasp at the shrewdness of the police work and the majesty of the criminal justice system that brings the culprits finally to answer for his crime. But now, with serial and making a murderer and wrongful conviction, we are awash in the flip side of true crime. What do you think it is that has turned people's attention to the equally compelling stories of miscarriages of justice? Every time one of these exonerations happens, there's a story in the newspaper, right? And they're amazing human interest stories. And so, ultimately, Hollywood, for lack of a better word, caught up with this, going back to the Onion Fields or the Thin Blue Line. One was a Joseph Wambaugh nonfiction. The other was an Errol Morris documentary. Twelve Angry Men would probably fall in that category. So there's been a history of this, but 
Making a murderer captured the public imagination and mine in a way that was absolutely stunning. And, you know, one other thing I, I do want to touch on, because there are cases we know of, like Jeffrey Deskovic, who's also been featured on my podcast, who when he was 16 years old, he was interrogated for nine hours without an attorney, without a parent, and ultimately coerced into confessing. And at his trial, Bob, DNA was presented that proved that he didn't do it. And he was convicted anyway, because a jury cannot comprehend in general how a person could possibly confess to something they didn't do. So everyone who watched Making a Murder, everyone who listens to my podcast, everyone who's listening right now is a potential juror. And if I can just influence or help to influence some of those people to take a more educated, more skeptical, more serious look at the evidence that's being presented to them when someone's life is at stake, then that's a success. In a world of fake news and intense suspicion about institutions everywhere, is there some risk that the true innocence genre will make us doubt the basic structural integrity of our criminal justice system? Wasn't it Ben Franklin that said it's better for a hundred guilty men to go free than for one innocent man to be convicted? And, you know, people may disagree on those numbers. <laughs> Maybe people have a tolerance for five and not a hundred, or who knows? We lock up more people per capita than any country at any time in the history of the world. There's so many innocent people, and the system is so broken that it's a dream to think that the pendulum could swing that far in the other direction. I think that these shows are going to have an impact on reforming the system, not collapsing the system. Jason, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. Jason Flom is host of the Wrongful Conviction podcast and one of the founding board members of The Innocence Project. I was five and he was six. We rode on horses made of sticks. He wore black and I wore white. He would always win the fight. Bang, bang. He shot me down. Bang, bang. I hit the ground. Bang, bang, that awful sound. That's it for this week's bang, show bang, on the media. is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, and Michael Lowinger. We had more help from Sarah Kari, Leah Feder, and Kate Bakhtiarova. And our show was edited this week by our executive producer, Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Terrence Bernardo and Sam Baer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Brooke Gladstone will be back next week. I'm Bob Garfield. Support for On the Media comes from the Overbrook Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.